0: Welcome back to another edition of the KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. Today we're going to look at a documentary that has just been completed but is still in the fundraising stages, and I have two of the filmmakers here. The documentary is called 1948: Creation and Catastrophe.
1: It was and uh, a feeling of creation. The feeling of you have a state of your own, a Jewish state, oh, no one can,
2: no one have ever lived such a situation. It was the only time I remember in my life that I really seen a total happiness. I mean, everyone was dancing and everyone was happy.
3: In the declaration of the state, I was not happy. I did not dance, yes? And I said, it
1: will be trouble. It will be trouble, and it
4: (laughs) it became trouble. A people without land for a land without people. So they wanted to give the Jews a land because they didn't have land. But the problem is that the land they gave them had people It was inhabited by Palestinians for thousands of years.
0: One of the filmmakers is a former KPBS employee, who is Andy Trimlett. Hi, Andy. Good to see you. And the other filmmaker is Halam Mataseb. Welcome.
5: Thank you for having me.
0: So first of all, for a documentary like this, I'm always curious, what drew you to this topic? what What is your background and, and kind of how did you come to this?
5: Uh, I'm a professor of communication studies, and I teach mainly me, uh, media studies, actually, at California State University, San Bernardino. And I started working on this project as part of my field research, and I was doing a study on Palestinian refugees narratives of diaspora and the creation of collective identity in diaspora among Palestinian refugees. So I was doing the field work in the refugee camps in Syria and Lebanon, and I started in two thousand and six and it's like long term project. Then I met Andy in two thousand and seven in an anti war peace rally, I guess and uh, we got introduced by one of our mutual friends, and he had similar ideas. Part of my fieldwork was to actually do my own little documentary with my, you know, limited skills, because I took a social justice perspective, and I wanted to give voice to those refugees after I finished my, my fieldwork and I published it. And then Andy knew about that and got intrigued. He said, you know, we could probably join forces and do something... That is about the refugees, but bigger than that, you know, to talk about 1948. And I let him tell you why 1948, why tell the story of 1948.
6: So I got my master's degree in Middle East Studies after graduating from right here at San Diego State University with a bachelor's in international security and conflict resolution. It's like the longest title ever. And then I wanted to get my master's in Middle East Studies at the University of Washington, And I studied the Middle East for a couple years and looked a lot at the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But really, if I'm gonna be honest with you, I didn't understand the Israeli-Palestinian conflict even after I graduated. It it didn't click for me. I knew a lot of the facts and figures and the history and, and the dates and the people. But overall, I didn't connect the dots. It didn't make sense until after I graduated, I started looking into the year 1948. And once I understood what happened then, everything else started to fall into place. I mean, basically the, the picture of 1948 is one group of people comes into Palestine and forces another group of people off the land, the people who lived there already. And that actu- that process is continuing to this day. And and once you understand that, everything else starts to make sense. the The wall starts to make sense that they're building. The home demolitions, the forcing people off of their land. Everything falls into place, and and, and it stops being this conflict of oh, those people have been fighting for thousands of years, and they they're just crazy and they just kill each other because that's who they are. And it's you, it, it's you start to realize what is actually going on, and you can make sense of the conflict today. And I figured. If I had gone through a graduate program and still didn't, didn't, that didn't click for me, how could a regular person who, who hadn't studied this um, ever make sense of the conflict? And so I decided somebody had to make a documentary about this. And well, I guess it turned out to be me. And I found out that Ahlam was going to Lebanon to do um, interviews in refugee camps. And I was like, oh, well, what kind of camera are you using? <laughs> so then we, we jumped on this together and um, have combined forces and have been doing. Lots of work since then.
0: <laughs> well, and Andy, what got you interested in Middle East studies?
6: Uh, I don't have any personal connection to anything in the Middle East. Basically, I got my my bachelor's in international security, and I, I wanted to do a master's degree. And one of my professors said, uh, "You know, don't don't get a master's in something general like um, international relations. If, if you're just going to get a master's, go for, go for something specific like an area studies." And really, I just kind of picked Middle East. You know, like it wasn't a region I had any special interest in. It just sounded neat. Um, I also applied to programs in Asian study, like you know, East Asian studies, and, and and I got into the program, and I I just fell in love with it, and and I'm fascinated by it. And then when I was in school, I was really shocked at the difference between what I was learning in school about the region and what I would read in the newspaper, or or hear on the radio, or you know, see on on the internet about you know the news. Like it seemed like I was learning about two different worlds. And I felt like someone had to start making a, an effort to change that and, and to show the stuff that I, you know, the information I was learning about, the history that I was learning about, that that was an essential component to make sense of it all.
0: And Halam, how did you get interested in your educational pursuit? What made you decide to kind of take that route?
5: Well, I'm originally Palestinian and I actually came to the to the United States about 20, 20 years ago on a Fulbright scholarship by the American government to do my master's. Uh, then I did my PhD and I stayed here. So part of it really is my my background, you know, my heritage. But another element that actually made me interested in Palestinian refugees in particular, because I'm Palestinian, but I'm not a refugee, was actually uh, the experiences of several Palestinians I have known over the years, including my, um, you know, the person who became my husband later that I met in grad school and the story of his family. I guess I was lucky. I felt I was lucky because my family decided to never leave their homeland, even if that meant death. And so we didn't lose our land. And I started seeing, even though we we were both Palestinians, that our experiences were totally shaped by the experiences of being a refugee in 1948, which is, of course, still a very timely and very important conversation taken into consideration that now we have the largest Refugee um, population among the Syrians, for example. And his family actually experienced being refugees several times because they were in Kuwait and then they were pushed back to Syria after they were originally in Syria and then they were pushed back to come to the United States. So they experienced this several times. So that intrigued me, you know, to study not only the um, sociological circumstances of being a refugee, but also the internal forces inside you? What makes you keep going in spite of all, like against all the odds, you know, in spite of all these horrifying, systematic experiences you are having as a refugee? What keeps people going? You know, how do they feel? How do they form a sense of community, a sense of collective identity, especially those who actually still live in the refugee camps in basically like in Lebanon if you look at Lebanon which was like a main focus for me uh, the physical conditions on the ground for refugees are actually almost the same since 1948 so all of these things you know intrigued me into focus on studying the refugees and that's then you know i thought well all of them when you, when asked when you ask them as a scholar you know you like w- how can I help you? What do you want me to do beyond just, you know, benefiting as a scholar from the research, you know? Uh, And they would say, I would love for the world to know about us. You know, it seems like we are forgotten. Nobody cares. Nobody says anything. And that's how I wanted to tell their story.
0: This is a very large and complex topic. So when you tackled making a documentary, which is usually anywhere from 90 minutes to two hours or something like that, what Did you decide to focus on, and and what did you want the documentary to be?
6: There have been a lot of documentaries on 1948, and and there have been some very good documentaries on 1948. But a lot of them focused on a specific family or, or a specific aspect of it. And what we wanted to do was kind of take a step back and look at the whole story, you know, what happened and, and we wanted to do it in an hour and a half. The big inspiration for this was, was Ken Burns. So the style, you know, the, the look of it, the feel of it has a lot of influences from Ken Burns um, because we wanted it to be a documentary that that a person watching KPBS um, would relate to and would, would understand the feel of. It was important to us to really get the f- like kind of a f- as full a picture as we can in 19- as, as much as you can do for a... Massive story like this in ninety minutes, and so we worked very hard to get interviews with both Palestinians and Israelis. It was it was a lot of work. Uh, there were a lot of people that that didn't want to talk, um, They didn't want to you know mention anything about the war, and 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 then just getting to these interviews was a lot of work. Um, Ahlam was um, I went through refugee camps in Lebanon. Um, I went to uh, Israel, on the West Bank, Jordan. And, you know, there's just getting from one place to the other and, and living in these places is, you know, it's an experience in and of itself. But what we wanted to do is really step back and give, give the full story of what happened and, so that Americans could really grasp this thing and get their head around it and not feel like they were just being given one little slice of it or another little slice of it, but get the big picture.
0: So the audience you had in mind was an American audience. You wanted to make this film to help educate an American audience.
5: Yes, absolutely. You know, people who knew very little or maybe nothing about the Middle East, they hear it all the time on the news Uh, They hear about the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, but some people don't even know where the region is, who are the people involved. As Andy said before, they probably think that this conflict has been going on for thousands of years or hundreds of years, which is not true if it's a very contemporary conflict it actually started at basically at the end of the the 19th century and then the the majority of action happened during the first uh, of the 20th century but it still continues until today it's one of the most uh, complicated conflicts in the world
6: when i'm working on this every edit that um, that i suggest every decision we make i think about my neighbors like my neighbors across the street like what what do they want to know? What do they what do they not understand about this conflict? And what's the best way to communicate what happened to them? I really think, like, I've shown clips of this to a lot of people, a lot of educated people. And there's, in some circles, there's a sense that Americans just don't care or they don't understand, you know, they don't want to know. But everyone I've shown these clips to, they're fascinated by it. And they say, wow, I had no idea any of this happened or any of this even went on. I mean... You know, there's a lot of education that needs to take place. And I think that, you know, once if you understand what happened in 1948, you can make sense of everything else. And that's what's so critical about this story.
5: Uh, And I think Andy and I make the perfect couple to really partners to do uh, this kind of work, because Andy is just a white, you know, young American male who as he said, doesn't have any relation to the Middle East. So he brings in that important element of reminding me always how an average American might actually think about something we are doing, right? And I bring, of course, my historical roots, you know. um, I actually was born and lived most of my life in historical Palestine, under Israeli occupation, and I speak the language. I'm multilingual, but, you know, Arabic is my native language. And especially with, uh, and I speak also some Hebrew. So that kind of, like, combination between someone who lived the experience. and So it, it's a very good balance, actually, between the two of us, I thought, you know.
0: So this is a complex issue. We need to start somewhere. One of the early scenes in the film deals with something that was called Plan D. So explain what that is and who we're going to hear from in the film.
6: This is this happens early in the war.
0: Uh, backtrack a little bit. When you say early in the war, for people who may not know what war we're talking about. Let's do a little quick let's do, let's do a recap, recap on, on history. Setup. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes.
6: <laughs> okay. So... Do this as fast as I can. 19th century, there are um, Jews across Europe and Russia who are being horribly persecuted in all manners of, uh, in all manners and all ways in society. So they come up with this idea that let's get out of Europe and Russia and let's go find a place that we can be safe in, that we can have our own place that we can call our own. And and the place they chose was Palestine. And the movement was that that started this all was called Zionism. And so they started moving in small groups at first and then larger and larger to Palestine uh, the essential problem was it was called a land without a people for a people without a land but there actually was a people there there were there was a large group of people and the people that lived there started hearing that this new group of people that were moving in wanted to take over the land and wanted to make it their own and there were even people saying that you know we want to push people off of the land or we want to, you know, you know, we want to offer them land somewhere else and basically get them out of the place that they've lived for thousands of years. And that eventually turned into conflict and it went back and forth. The British ended up taking over Palestine at the end of World War I, and the British government declared their support for the Zionist movement in the Balfour Declaration. And that further inflamed the Arab population and made them nervous that they were going to lose their homes. Eventually, skip to 1947, the British give up on this whole thing. They're, they're, they say, we're going to get out of here. You deal with it And to the UN. And to the, Uni- the newly formed United Nations came up with the plan to let's split Palestine in two. We'll give part of it to the Jews and part of it to the Arabs. Unfortunately, the part they gave to... Basically, they gave vastly more land to the Jewish side than the Arab side, and there were a large number of Arabs who lived in what was to become the Jewish state. And the Arabs, basically that ended up in conflict, as everyone expected. So it started off sort of messy for the first few months, and then round about uh, April, the Israelis went on the, or the it was actually the Jews at the time, they weren't, they weren't the Israelis until the state was founded in May the Jewish state or or state-like entity implemented Plan D, or also known as the Hebrew name Plan Dalit. And this plan is argued over fiercely by, by historians to this day. And some historians declare it the, you know, this is a master plan for the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. Other historians say this isn't a master plan for ethnic cleansing. It's a defensive plan to make sure that, you know, the, the, f- the coming Israeli state is consolidated and protected from the f- future war because they knew at that point that the surrounding Arab states were going to intervene in this conflict. This is the clip from the documentary where we have the kind of back and forth between historians talking about uh, this, this plan.
0: All right, let's hear a clip from the documentary 1948, Creation and Catastrophe. This is about the Plan D.
6: The British had announced that they would complete their evacuation of Palestine on the 15th of May. Zionist leaders began preparing for a Jewish state. On March 10th, the Haganah adopted Plan Dalit, also known as Plan D. This plan outlined an overall strategy for the Jewish militia. Its stated goal was to prepare the coming Hebrew state to defend itself once the British army had left. But historians strongly disagree about the intentions of this plan
3: it's geared and it says that it's geared to securing the jewish state and the border areas and the main roads between the jewish urban concentrations to securing the jewish state in advance of the arab invasion it's completely ridiculous i mean it's very clear that plan dalet was a plan not just to take over but to empty of their population all of these villages and cities now were there people who understood that writing down on paper we will expel this population was probably not a wise thing to do, yes. But was there a clear intention implemented to the letter to expel the populations and, more importantly, not to let them return? There was.
1: The most important part of Plan D was the set of orders that came outside of Plan D. The orders were uh, strikingly clear and unambiguous and used the word let In Hebrew, which is to cleanse or to uh, destroy, which is the Hashmid, or to expel, which is the Garish. I think the role of the historian is to fuse these military orders with the plan itself, uh, and then you get an, an idea of the intention and
6: the implementation.
0: And who were the people that we heard speaking about this?
6: We heard from a few people there. It was sort of a back and forth between historians. First, we heard from me. Uh, <laughs> I'm currently playing the role of narrator, but we are um, actively seeking a professional narrator. So that will be changed. One of the few things left to do in the documentary. Then we heard from uh, Benny Morris. Um, Benny Morris is a controversial historian. He's an Israeli. <clears throat> He's uncovered a, a massive amount of uh, information on... Uh, on what happened in 1948. He's gone through probably more documents than anybody in the Israeli archives. And so in a way, he's he's extremely valuable to historians uh, of the conflict. There's, there's just massive amounts of information that nobody um, would have without his work. But the conclusions he draws from uh, these plans that call for things like cleansing and there are a lot of historians who disagree with the conclusions he draws and feel like he doesn't actually read his own work um, because he feels none of this was planned and, and none of this was in- intentional ethnic cleansing. Then we heard from uh, Rashid Khalidi, who's a historian at Columbia University. He, of course, disagrees with uh, with Benny Morris, and the argument he's making isn't that the the plan specifically calls for the expulsion of all the Palestinians, But when you look at the broader picture, the intention was there. The interest was there. And we'll hear some more of that later. Uh, And then the final historian we heard from uh, is another controversial historian um, named Ilan Pape, who is at Exeter University now. And he is uh, very strongly making the argument that this was uh, a case for uh, ethnic cleansing. And one thing you don't see in the audio is when he is talking, we're showing military orders that call for these exact things that he's describing. We actually we sent a, a producer in Israel to Israeli archives, and they dug up a number of military orders that call for these exact things, and you see them throughout the documentary. And what we've done is show the original Hebrew document and then put an English translation over it so you can see you can see him firsthand, which I think is really valuable.
5: And it's worth noting that actually Elam Pope at least used to be an Israeli uh, historian, as well as uh, Benny Morris, he he left the country later on uh, because he got a lot of threats, basically. His life became kind of, you know, risky there. So um, I think what is interesting is both of them show like the spectrum, both ends of the spectrum in terms of how historians see the conflict. And we also have other historians. We filmed in United Kingdom, in you know, England, we filmed in Canada, we filmed in the United States, Palestine, Jordan, Lebanon.
0: So this is a starting point in your documentary. Why is it so important for kind of the language to be defined and understood? Why is it historically important for us to understand what the difference is between if it's an expulsion versus a defensive move, why, from a historical point of view, is it so important to kind of look back at this early document and kind of come to a consider what it is that they're talking about and what words are being used and why that's important?
6: Language is extremely important in everywhere, but especially in this conflict, uh, and and the reason that these. That, that exactly what happened and exactly what documents like this called for are so important is because they tie into what is going on to this day, right now, um, in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So there, the, the the Israeli line has been for decades that they did not call for the expulsion of the Palestinian people, They that the Palestinians left... Uh, Either because of battle and they were scared, or on their own accord, or in some cases um, because the Palestinian they, they say the Palestinian leaders called on Arabs to leave. If if that argument, if if you if you go with that argument, then it leads to, therefore, it is not incumbent upon the state of Israel to allow refugees to return to the places where they were born. And that is a massive issue. It sort of, it goes to the heart of, of what Israel is. The, I mean, this, this year, 1948, is when the state of Israel was founded. So if, if you start questioning uh, the basic foundation of the state, then, then kind of all bets are off. Now, we don't take any position on what exactly should happen here in the documentary. This is purely a historical documentary, but th- that's the reason that these... These issues are so hotly debated, and 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 that every individual word matters so much is because it go, it all comes back to what's happening today and what could possibly happen in any future settlement of the conflict.
5: As a scholar, I, I totally agree with Andy, but also as a you know a scholar of communication studies, um, I have also a, an, another take on this. And in communication, language for us is everything. You know, it, like we are human beings because we have the ability of communicating in so many different ways and usually that communication translates into realities on the ground for me i was very intrigued by the discourse like i feel like israel has been since you know its beginnings uh, and before established on a certain discourse about the conflict creating myths basically and one of the uh, greatest and most successful actually uh myths that Israel created was that there were there was no Palest or were no Palestinian people. And this was a very prominent theme actually in a political discourse, you know, up until very recently, only when they were forced really to acknowledge the existence of the Palestinian people. The Israelis have been um denying it in discourse and also on the ground. For example, in nineteen forty eight after the Israelis won the war and they really literally kicked or expelled most of the Palestinians out, one of the immediate things they did, and they did it for several years, was the destruction of Palestinian towns and villages to erase, actually, any reminder of the Aboriginal or indigenous Palestinian population. And that led to the destruction of over 500 Palestinian towns and villages. So not only did they actually expel the population, they actually instated so many different policies and rules and practices that went hand-in-hand with their discourse, with their language of denial of first the Palestinian people and later actually their part in the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. So that's why language becomes very important. And as Andy said, how can we link it to current-day policies, of course, because the systematic ethnic cleansing is still happening. And and, and so it's a continuous historical process of ethnic cleansing that went hand-in-hand with the kind of language and propaganda. And in the United States, unfortunately, the Israeli narrative is the dominant one. It's very dominant. I mean, it's very rare to find in mainstream media in the United States any voices representing uh, the Palestinian narrative. Um, You would find it very different in Europe, for sure, but not in the United States. So that's why language is very important, because it frames the whole narrative and the understanding of the American mind about what's going on in Palestine.
0: Let's hear another clip from the film that dovetails off of this. There's a scene where you have people talking about this notion of, did the Palestinians runaway or were they pushed out?
6: So this is an interview I did with Mordechai Bar'on, who is a, a famous Israeli historian, but he was also a company commander in the Haganah, which was the main Jewish militia um, in 1948. It's very interesting because there's this, there is this conversation that we've already started talking about where there's, there's a historical argument that Benny Morris puts forward that, that the Palestinians weren't chased out. They weren't pushed out of their homes that they, the battles were happening nearby, they saw the shooting, they saw the explosions, and they ran away. And, and that's why they left. And Mordechai Bar'on makes, he, I, I'm just gonna play his argument for you. He, he, he counters this argument, um, and here we go.
3: I think that when we talk about the refugee problem, it is not so much important when we chase them it's not their fault that they wanted to run away. After the sin and the fear of war, every, every citizen would run away. So it was not that they deserted their home. They did not deserve. They were forced to leave because of the war. And in those places where they didn't know, didn't do it, we chased them out, like in Lord and Ramleh
2: You have to, to understand that for instance the Jewish villages were spread all over the country, from the Negev to the Galil. You wanted to be connected, to to make them one unit. But of course, everyone wanted to get more uh, more land.
3: The fact matters that these people were suffering tremendously as they were running away. Thirst and hunger, and in the great heat, children were abandoned. And then later in the refugee camps, when they came up near Ramallah and suffered for many years and are not terribly happy even today. That doesn't mean that I think that they should come back to Orlod. As I full-heartedly agree that I would shoot at them if they come back in, uh, say, October, November 1948, I don't think we will need to shoot at them. But Israel cannot afford to take back millions of Palestinians and and remain what it is today. The state in which i want
6: to live that last line gets me every time because it shows so much empathy and so much understanding for what happened to the palestinians that how 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 much suffering there was because of what what he and his his fellow soldiers did but then it comes back to but that's not the kind of you know i don't want them to come back because that's not the kind of state i want to live in and i think that really shows like that's it's it's puts such a powerful spotlight on what the main the crux of the problem is today is you know Palestinians have been living in refugee camps since 1948 and they want to come home but you know even people who understand even it, Israelis who understand what happened to them in 1948 which is you know rarer they, that's not the kind of place they want to live in. And it really it, it grates upon kind of how I view countries as an American because here it's like, you know, everybody should come in. You know, we, we should have, you know, everybody should have equal rights. But that's it's just not the kind of way he looks at it.
0: Well, and that also gets to why this is such a difficult problem to resolve or to come up with solutions for. One of the problems with this also is that, This happened in 1948, so a lot of the people who were witnesses to this or who experienced this are getting older and are getting harder to find and to speak with. You actually do speak with someone who was kicked out of his home, uh, Anwar Saka, and can you set up the clip with him?
6: Yeah, this is an interview I did. This guy was amazing. He's in Jordan now. He talked about living in Jaffa which was the mo- one of the most cosmopolitan cities in Palestine, and and the way he described it, you could just you could just picture it without even you know without any without any images at all. But and so this this point this comes in the the document the documentary after the attack on Jaffa, which was accompanied by massive mortar bomb- bombardment and an invasion by militia members, and he says, you know, I I, I told my father like. I'm not going to leave. You know, I, I, we're going to stay here, whether we, we live here or, or we die here. But eventually, there's there's mortars falling really right right outside of his home, and and they have to go. And so this is this is the close to that segment.
3: It's not easy when you found yourself in a moment in a moment losing everything. Your family, your home, your business, your school, your past, your uh, uh, education, everything, everything, completely. And thrown out in the street to nowhere.
5: We have many actually interviews with Palestinian refugees in several countries. The problem is many of them don't speak English. You know, they actually spoke in Arabic, so it's very hard to put it, you know, in a podcast. So we picked only the interviews that were in English. So the Israelis are more represented, actually, in the segments we selected. But I just want to point out to a very important issue which you actually uh, brought up, which is the issue of those people who lived through the conflict and they are aging uh, and actually they are dying and with their death, you know, the death of the refugees or even the Israeli fighters, you know, those narratives and stories are being lost forever, basically. So this is the other important element of our project. And as as a scholar, it's it's very important for me. Also to focus on and mention, which is uh, in in essence, this is also a, a, an oral history project for me and Andy. It goes beyond just the film. The film is an important educational piece for us. We want to get it out, and we want all American you know people to watch it, etc. But at the same time, there is also the element of documenting all these important stories. And hopefully, after we finish all of the work with the film and the distribution and everything. Uh, we'll have some sanity after eight years of of hard labor for for both me and him. Uh, we will have the chance to put everything on, like clean all these interviews and put them on our website, and put more materials and interactive uh, maps and and other things.
0: And from a filmmaking point of view, how difficult was it for you to get these interviews? This would require traveling for you and also getting people to open up about things that perhaps they weren't that willing to or that it was too painful to revisit?
6: Absolutely. Uh, It was was sort of different getting interviews with Palestinians and Israelis. So the the Palestinians, many of them, were very much willing and, and almost demanded to share their story. Uh, there were some that had shared their story so many times with so many filmmakers that and never seen anything come of it that they were sort of jaded, but in general, most of them really wanted to share their story so it was more just a matter of connecting with people in in refugee camps or with refugee organizations and finding those people and finding the people who could best tell the story. We did like ninety interviews for this and only only about a third of them appear in the documentary so we picked we picked the best you know the people who most capture the story and can best connect with an audience with the israeli side um i actually hired a couple three different producers and and they were and then i didn't work on my own calling people and and emailing people and and they had a hard time the the, the answer that most they most often received was we don't talk about this and, and and there were so many people that were you know that were open to or th- that they would call and and they were veterans and and they said this isn't something that we talk about and it was only just through months and months of work and calling everyone we knew and and everyone they knew that we were able to get about a dozen interviews with Israelis later on. Lam and she can tell this story uh, met through a great story a um, a, a man who. Uh, Survived the massacre at Dariassin, which is the most infamous massacre of the war.
5: Well, uh, first I want to say that I, I'll give it to Andy, because without Andy, we wouldn't have gotten any Israeli interviews, basically. Okay, I have to give some like logistical uh, background. So I'm originally Palestinian. I'm an American citizen now, but I'm originally Palestinian who used to live in the West Bank of historical Palestine. So in essence, Israel does not allow any Palestinian from the West Bank or Gaza to travel to, you know, proper Israel. You know, what is what is considered now inside the Green Line, which is like the borders between the West Bank, uh, Gaza and Israel. Uh, Number one, it would have been impossible for me to actually have access to Israeli interviewees. And that's why and it was very important. That's why I said we are a very unique like perfect, um, you know, partners to do this work. And the second obstacle would be, you know, for me as a Palestinian, Israelis wouldn't even talk to me. I mean, they wouldn't have opened up or said any of the things they told Andy. The fact that he is an American, you know, white male, you know, who who did that work made a difference, you know, in, in the way they interacted with him and opened up for him. Um, And especially that he used uh, Israeli producers. So that was also helpful, especially in terms of, you know, translation and everything. Now, for the interview, I met this older old man. You know, we were basically in in protest, you know, in in the summer of 2014. And I've seen him several times coming to the protest, you know, with his aging wife, who seemed to be in a very bad health, actually. But he was, like, kind of insistent on, number one, coming to the protests when when Israel was shelling Gaza. And also it seemed like he wanted his wife to get out and meet people. Uh, He was very caring, very nice man. And I was intrigued. Like, I kept on seeing him, uh, you know, almost every week for, you know, um, for a month or a couple of months maybe. And then I went and I asked him, like, hi, my name is this, I'm, you know— originally Palestinian. He said, yeah, me too. And I said, where are you from originally? He said, I'm from Deir Yassin. And as Andy said, Deir Yassin is the town that witnessed the worst. Well, it's not probably not the worst, but in terms of what actually happened, the killing and the massacre itself. But the impact of the massacre, it was the massacre that was highly exaggerated by the Israelis and helped in driving out many, many Palestinians uh, who were very scared. So I was, I kind of froze. I was like, from Dariassin, Dariassin in Palestine? And he said, yes. And I was like, may I ask you, were you in Dariassin when the massacre happened? He said, yes. I was seven years old. I was shocked. Like, we tried to find survivors from Dariassin, me and Andy. We couldn't find them in Palestine or Lebanon or, you know, any of these countries. But I was shocked to find someone in San Diego, actually. So I said, you know, we're working on this documentary. Do you mind if we interview you? He said, I don't mind, but I'm very busy with my wife. You know, I take, I'm the only one who takes care of her, blah, blah, blah. But why don't you interview my brother? And I was like, you have a brother here? And he said, yes, in Escandido. Uh, and I said, how old was he? And he said he was older than me. He was 11 years old. And actually, he authored three books, and one of them was on Dariusin and his experiences. And I think that's probably now, Andy and I consider that, the most fascinating interview we have in the documentary. This person has just the weirdest story you could ever hear because he was 11 hopping from one place to the other while the massacre was going on, trying to escape, and every time he would actually witness another brutal killing. A total of, I think, 12 or 13 different people were killed in front of him in totally different ways. And... That, of course came after we Andy and I decided we wanted to just do the post production and finish the film, and that took us back you know like eight months in just following up and fact checking that specific story because it it became one of the most important elements and and that led, of course, to another important interview we have, which is one of the the one the officer he talked about Geho. Who actually was ordered to go and clean up the mess in Daryacene?
6: Daryacine was a village of eight hundred people i mean it's like the size of Petrero, and a hundred and ten of them were killed in the massacre um it's been you know it, it was nineteen forty eight when this took place there's not a lot of them left and I'm just happened to walk by and meet one on the street in San Diego. Like, I mean, what are the chances? It was like, we, we had to do another interview and we did this and it was, it was so amazing. And then we realized, well, if we're going to have, this is going to be one of the most powerful interviews in the documentaries this is going to blow people away. Um, and I'd love to share a clip with you, but it's all in Arabic. So it'd be very hard to work on the podcast. So, okay, we'll we have, we have to get an Israeli who was there too. And there weren't, there are not a lot of Israelis who were there in the first place and there're not a lot of Israelis um that we even who we don't know who was there but I made a list of a few that were the first one turned out he was he was so sick that he couldn't speak the second one said I've already written a book on this I'm not talking to anyone else ever again about it so just read my book um and the third one said yes and he was a Haganah intelligence officer he was at Daryasin and uh, was reporting on it before and afterwards and then was asked to go clean it up, clean up the mess, basically, and that's this—that's a clip here. After the attack, the Haganah sent men to cover up the atrocities.
1: They came to me and gave me a platoon of soldiers and soldiers and uh, told me go there and make order. And so I came there and I was Shuddering because I see how the uh, dead were strewn and they were eating uh, sandwiches with uh, marmalade. For some time I couldn't eat marmalade after that. And then I told them, Look here, I'm going to fire and shoot and kill you if you don't clean this up. And so they made the uh, graves and buried them, and a few they threw in a well, and um, everything was apparently clean. And then everything looked uh,
6: peaceful. Every time I hear that clip, I'm just stunned that he used the word peaceful to describe what it looked like after cleaning up a massacre.
0: What role did this massacre play in this timeline that you're looking at in 1948?
6: So the massacre took place on April 9th. After the massacre happened, the the news of it spread like wildfire, partially intentionally uh, on the Jewish side. And it terrified. People heard reports of what happened there, and it terrified uh, Arabs across um, the country. And in many cases, Jewish trucks would go around with loudspeakers saying, if you don't leave we're going to have a Darius scene here too. And many, many people, this was either the primary reason they left. Um, they told us, like when we said, we never brought up Darius scene in interviews, but many interviews we would say, so why did you leave? And the first words out of their mouth were Darius scene. If it wasn't, then when, when the Jewish forces or later the Israeli forces showed up at, at their village, that's, this is what they would be thinking of. They would be thinking of Darius scene and, and, and it would cause them to leave.
5: And also, uh the Israelis made sure that they actually exaggerate the massacre and 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 publicize it, and for example, the following day, they held a press conference those fighters actually uh, and it 's reported in, uh, it was reported in many media outlets, including the New York Times The New York Times ran actually a story uh, about the massacre based on the press conference that those Israeli fighters had you know or you know members of the Haganah. And it's interesting if you read the the news article in the New York Times, they describe how they were talking about the massacre over tea and cookies. That's actually in the original article of the New York Times. And during that press conference, they made sure they doubled the number, or actually more than doubled the number, of the Palestinians who were killed. So the Palestinians killed were estimated between ninety-seven and one hundred and six, around those num, or one hundred and ten. Like, there are still disagreements on the actual number, you know. But what they reported was 253 um, as being killed in that massacre. And that was an intentional publicizing. And they even exaggerated the horrors they did, you know, the things they did to the population. And Dari Yassin is is also a very interesting case because it was one of few Palestinian towns or villages, you know, that had a peace agreement with the um, surrounding uh, Jewish settlements. So it's very interesting that they picked a peaceful town to do the massacre and then publicize it, which of course sent a very strong message to the Palestinians, that even if you were a peaceful town, you know you might actually f- the face, face the fate of the Ryazin.
0: Hearing you say that they held the press conference to exaggerate what had happened is kind of a difficult concept to understand if they're also saying we didn't force the Palestinians, so how does, how, like.
6: So there's a couple things going on here. One is the people who committed this massacre were not the main Jewish uh, militia, the Haganah. Uh, the people who committed this massacre were the Irgun and Lehi, um, also known as the Stern Gang. They were much more radical than the Haganah. And they really had the intention, um, Mordechai Renan, who was the one who um, was leading this press conference and was in charge of the um, Irgun in Jerusalem, he was later asked, why did you say 253? And he's like, I wanted to scare people. I wanted, I wanted them to leave. And, and it worked. And so it, it was the much more radical um, end of the spectrum was holding this press conference. And and they were condemned by the Haganah, although the Haganah was um, somewhat implicated in the massacre itself because they essentially allowed the attack to happen.
0: So you spoke to some Israelis who had lived through this time. One woman that you spoke to is Hava Keller. Set up this clip that you want to play.
6: So uh, Hava Keller was this amazing woman. Uh, I interviewed her in her house. Um, she's this tiny little woman, um With a tiny little voice, so um I apologize if it's hard to understand her but but she was so powerful she was she fought in nineteen forty eight and now she's she's a pretty hardcore peace activist, although a few months after um this interview she had a stroke and can no longer speak so this is her this is the last time as far as I know, this is the last time she's ever been recorded and this part of the story is in May shortly after the Arab armies intervened in in the conflict and the now Israeli forces attack the town of Acre, and also known as Akka. She was part of that attack and was going through the town after the attack was over, and this is what
7: happened. We went and we were moving around this village. Akka entered, the door was open, and we entered. Jeez. Under the table, there was a pair of small shoes. They so were eating. And then somebody told them to go away quickly. They didn't have time to put on the shoes of the baby. This part of the war, I have seen it the first time. This war is not a war of soldiers, it was, it's a war of people, of children. And I started crying. The child needs his shoes. Need to, to send the shoes to the child. Where can, can he be? So,
0: these kind of very personal, intimate details seem really good at try at making these issues very vivid for people. Were you going after that in these interviews?
6: What what we wanted the documentary to be is a mix of these very you know, intimate stories that, that, that happen, in, you know, like, like a child's shoes, like that it, it, it captures so much in that story and there's so much emotion there. And, and it was sort of a moment of realization for, for Hava Keller, like of what she had gotten herself into and then move back and kind of give you the big picture. So we want you to be able to connect with the people and connect with the stories, but also understand on a large scale how this plays into the story of the whole. So we, the, the documentary kind of goes back and forth between giving you the big picture and and then getting very close in on on some of the events like, like what Hava just described.
0: So part of the bigger picture, you talk to some people about documented expulsion. So who were the people you spoke to about that?
6: Ah, okay. So there's one place wh- where historians almost universally agree, and which is very rare in this in this conflict, uh, that there was an expulsion, and that was in Ramla and Lidda. And we show the military orders that were issued for the expulsion of both towns, we interviewed several people who were there at the time, both Israelis and Palestinians. It's a really this is one of our most powerful segments because it, it kinda captures the whole crux of, of nineteen forty eight in, in one moment.
5: When we reached the segment on uh, Ramla and Lud, we found out that the majority of our interviewees were actually Israelis. So we thought darn it, we really need um, you know, a Palestinian because we're talking about the expulsion of a whole two two big one of the biggest towns in in Palestine at that time and it was a total expulsion and it was very well documented so nobody could actually disagree on the expulsion part of those two towns but we, so we needed someone who lived through the expulsion of the whole towns so we basically I Actually, put on Facebook uh, an announcement <laughs> to all my friends and family, and I don't. And it's, they are not all Palestinians, but I have many Palestinians on my Facebook, uh, and I said, please, if you know anyone who lived through nineteen forty eight in Lid on, or Ramle, you know, to please, you know, email me or contact me. And I immediately received a tip from one of my friends who lives in, north of uh, Los Angeles, and she she said, yeah, I know, you know, my my daughter's father-in-law, he actually lives in Canada, if you can reach him, we were able to locate someone who could do the filming, and we, Andy and I interviewed him via Skype, basically.
6: So he talked about being, you know, they they, they rounded us all up, um, they put us in groups, and then they put us on, um, he said we were lucky, they put us on a bus, not a truck. So that was, I guess that was being lucky when you're in Ramla and Lidda. And so this clip is at the end of that segment, and we're going to hear from a few people. One is Sami Akhori, who she was in... Um, yeah, she's a Palestinian, and she was in the West Bank and saw these people coming, Like, because essentially the, all the people of Ramlan Lido left in the big column. The lucky ones were in cars, but many of them were just walking. And then we're going to hear from Yoram Kanyuk, who's actually... He's another person who died. I heard him on... He was a famous Israeli author, um, so famous that he died a few month, when he died a few months after this interview, um, he was on fresh air. they replayed his interview on fresh air and then the final person we 'll hear from is um, Mazen, so I will go ahead and play this clip now
4: everybody I mean the school, the church opened their doors, and my aunt opened the storeroom whatever we had, whatever was there, we just started boiling eggs, boiling potatoes, making salad, and whatever, and they came just so so. Exhausted. Some of them were even not coherent. The children died on the road. They couldn't cope with the with the walk. It was a very, very traumatic experience. A sight that I'll I'll never forget.
2: There were Arabs standing. Between Lud and Ramle and crying, they want to get back to their homes, and and I could do nothing. I know. And I felt very strongly about it because I saw them standing there, no shoes, and, and now they have to start walking and looking for someplace else. Then came the night, and at night, I don't know how many 15 or 16, or maybe 10, I can't remember trucks full of people that just came on the ship from the Holocaust. And they took over the town in five minutes. And so the whole tragedy was there in, in one moment. Here are the Arabs who used to live there. And here are people who come from from the Auschwitz and Medanek and all that. And they won, they won, they took the city. And, and the Arabs had to go to Nablus and to Jenin and to and it's not that it's right or wrong, but it's just a fact.
6: Prior to the Israeli attack, fifty to 70,000 Arabs were living in Ramla and Lydda. Now, only hundreds remained.
1: They took the elder member of the family. He was maybe, at the time, maybe he was 70 years old. And the soldier took his wallet. I remember this very, very well. So anyway, they took more than the wallet. They took everything.
5: Actually, later, um, we have another uh, Israeli interviewee who um, describes how this experience of seeing Arabs being driven out or expelled and also being robbed out of their positions, their money, wallets, et cetera, it dawned on him his experience as a very young boy when he was expelled by the Nazis and they were by the Seine River, when actually one of the the um, you know uh, Nazi soldiers also robbed them of their positions and valuables. So he talks about this experience later on. I have to say that uh, Mazen Al Khairi, who speaks at the end uh, about his experience and how they stole their uh, positions, he shared with his with me a very rare collection of of pictures that his family owned of their life before they were expelled and i was just shocked at, or amazed maybe i i'm not sure about my feelings their house was gorgeous like they lived in a mansion they were a very rich family and his father was uh, the mayor of the city and i think his grandfather was also the mayor and um they had this amazing you know very comfortable life beautiful memories you know in those came out of those images and it's just horrifying to see in 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 seconds basically they are transformed into refugees and and, and th- that's the power of those stories also you know that kind of transformation from people who used to own land and property and live very nice life for something they did not do, like, like they did not do anything to really uh, deserve what happened to them and become refugees until today
6: and i'm glad you brought up pictures because uh, that's been a huge part of this project. We uh, we've literally spent years collecting photographs and archival film from dozens of different sources. We we've, we've actually found images that some of the historians that we've been working with um, have never seen before. And because we really wanted to make sure that every moment in this documentary w- was brought to life with with an image of what what happened there and we were all we've also been very careful you know when when we're showing Ramla and Lida when we're talking about it you're seeing images of Ramla and Lida you're not just seeing images of some random Palestinian refugees from 1948 the, the moments in this film where we're talking about a specific event we wanted to show that event or we wanted to show that place and it's very difficult to find images for a lot of these uh, events because generally they're not Popularize, but through years and years of work and working with various researchers in the U.S. and uh, in Israel, uh, we managed to collect. Uh, we have a pretty massive collection of photographs on my pick on my computer now. In addition to the documents, the military orders. So there are over two hundred images in this documentary. The vast majority of them are actually free, thankfully. They come from places like the National Archives in the US or the Library of Congress. And then also there are some Israeli archives that offer them for either free or for like $5 a piece, which is totally reasonable. However, there are other places like such as Getty Images or Associated Press that want $524 per photo. And that's the negotiated price. <laughs> um, there are other places up to want you know seven hundred and fifty nine hundred dollars per photograph. So we we've been making this documentary kind of very much a by hook or by crook. You know I've been lugging my camera with my laptop and my all of my clothes and my tripod and my light kit. All by myself across various countries, people look at me with this sort of like oh uh, kind of look in their face. Everything we've done is just this is a labor of love. We're doing this because we think it's the right thing to do. Thankfully, we've found people who are willing to help us out. You know, like we can stay in their home, or we you know we, we've been able to do this on an extremely low budget. But at this point, there's just no way we can we can pay for these without additional support. We've had. You know we ran a Kickstarter a couple of years ago um it was very successful, but the total on the bill on the bill for these images um and the archival film is about thirty thousand dollars, which is just it, it gives me like indigestion just talking about it but <laughs> we are right now in the middle of fundraising for the project so if you are interested in the project, please go to nineteen forty eight movie dot com slash support and that's where you can make a contribution to any amount that will get us to the to the actual end of this project. Um, everything is done except for putting the new narration in and, and paying for those photographs. And and the money is going <laughs> to... That's what we need to, to get this done. So.
0: so aside from having to get your funding to finally get this film out, which must be a, a huge struggle because after putting all this work into it to just kind of be $30,000 away from... <laughs> From completion must be difficult. But returning to the subject of the film, another clip that I want to play has to do with a discussion about preventing the return of these people. So we've, we've talked about this expulsion, about the massacre. But tell me about some of the people you have talking about the prevention of these refugees returning to their homes.
5: So actually, one of the historians we interviewed, uh, Rashid Khalidi from uh, Colombia, uh, he emphasizes that point. And, and also some of, of the Israeli fighters as well as uh, Israeli historians, that let's suppose that there was not a master plan of expulsion. Let's suppose that this was just an act of war, you know, like a natural conclusion of war, et cetera then why weren't the Palestinian refugees allowed to return? Until today, Israel refuses absolutely to return any refugee from any part of the world. The only way you could actually return, like what happened with my parents-in-law, you know, my husband's parents, who fled Mjadel and Nazareth. Mjadel is a city by Nazareth. So they both came from those areas, and they... um. Um, One of them was expelled, and one of them basically ran away as a result of the fighting. The only way they could return was actually as American tourists when they got their American citizenship, when they were naturalized. They went back for the first time to their home country in 2010 only as American citizens, not as Palestinian refugees.
6: Okay, so the next clip we're going to hear is talking about the— the whole prevention of return of of the refugees, and it began in 1948, and we're first going to hear from Uri Avnery, uh, who's a a famous peace activist, um, but was also a a veteran of the Israeli commando unit. And so he'll talk about receiving the order, and then we're going to hear from um, historian Benny Morris to explain the thinking behind it. And then um, Farid Abdel who's actually a professor right here on San Diego State University campus. And I had him in school. He's the smartest person I've ever met. And finally we'll hear from uh Murakai Bar-On again, who will uh, talk about what was going through his mind when he was receiving these orders.
3: Then one day we got an order to take the jeeps and spread out and to shoot every Arab whom we saw coming in, coming in, coming back. And uh, this is what happened. The thinking behind this was, political but essentially strategic. The Arabs refugees who had been fighting, they were the Palestinians who had been fighting against the Jews. And they said if we allow these back, they will overwhelm us as a fifth column or they will overwhelm us demographically. In other words, there will be hundreds of thousands of additional Arabs and they will become a majority or close to a majority instantly if they return. So the Israeli cabinet decided not to allow them back.
0: We now must conclude that There was a recognition, at least, on the part of that early Israeli government, that the displacement of Palestinians was
3: necessary for what they probably viewed as the viability of their state. For me personally, it took the shape of an inner decision of myself. You wanted a war? Okay. Now you' run away you 'll never come back so the the notion of having this land empty of Arabs was already part of my life.
6: When I hear Mordechai Baron talk, like some of the stuff he says uh, is sort of sort of shocking, but what I really appreciate about everything he says is he's completely and totally honest. There are Israelis we interviewed who Maybe they didn't know about what was going on with the expulsion of people, or or maybe they're not comfortable talking about it. But but they, I wouldn't get a I wouldn't get a totally straight answer out of what, what was going on here. But Mordechai Baron, he is completely upfront about it, and he says this is this is what we ha this is what happened and this is what we did, and and this is why we did it, and and so I appreciate it. it's just you know whether or not you agree with him, it, it's it, it's just nice to hear. His, his honesty and his forthrightness with what, what went on. So the next clip we have is also from Mordechai Bar'on, and I think this clip really summarizes how he looks at the conflict as a whole. It's a very personal moment, but I think it, it, it captures more than just that one moment in, in, in the way he looks at the war, and I think it's a very, it, it does a very good job of explaining kind of the Israeli perception of the entire war.
3: I was lying in an ambush These were Palestinians who came back to the fields to reap the the harvest. And one of them was going in the front to make sure that the road is open. And I was lying across the road with a revolver in my hand. And uh, as he approached me, I stood up and he was a meter from me. He was so frightened that he embraced me. Then I became frightened. I didn't know what he has a weapon, a a revolver, a a knife, so I shot at him. And that's a very strange experience. He fell to the ground from my hands. So I was killing a man point blank, just right there. Uh, I didn't blame myself. I didn't didn't have any any feeling of remorse because I had no chance. I, I had to do it. It was only was, was natural that I, I should have reacted the way I reacted. So that's on the other hand. But I looked down and I said, poor fellow, you've
5: got it. <laughs> I think for me, the most disturbing part is, uh, and it happens, probably he is the most honest among all of the Israelis we interviewed. But at the same time, like it's so disturbing how people could actually end up justifying horrible things they've done and saying I had to do it, he does not acknowledge the fact that in the first place, he was in an ambush, lying in an ambush to prevent Palestinians from returning to their homelands. So, like, the contradiction in those statements are very, very disturbing for me to to listen to.
6: You know, uh, another thing that, that's important to keep in mind is that the people we interviewed for this documentary, you know, we didn't interview the generals. We didn't interview kind of the people who made big decisions in the high level. Like the highest level person we interviewed was a company commander like Mordechai Bar-on. So, you know, the, a lot of these people were, you know, 18, 20 years old um, when this all took place. So, you know, for them, this story about the ambush really is kind of how they felt about the war. Like they're 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 a kid, they're in, you know, they're growing up in this, this place that maybe they were born in or maybe they weren't, but um, there are a lot of people who don't want them there. And and so, for for them on, an, on a personal level, they really didn't have much of a choice. You know, this this was a fight that kind of was brought to them by their, you know, by the people who ran the organiz- you know, the Zionist organizations and kind of people way above them. And it's it's been really important to me to uh, to both of us to to humanize everyone in this conflict. You know, yes, there were terrible things that happened, and and, and I don't I don't think anyone should shy away from that, but you know, we don't want to just say those are terrible people and, you know, write them off, as, you know, demonize them and write them off. Like, we want we want people to understand what was going on on all levels and really make sense of this. And and in order to do that, you have to also understand, like, what the Israelis were thinking. And and so that's why, you know, clips like this, I think, are, are really illuminating. But certainly to, you know, Ahlam it brings up a very good point that, you know, when you really think about kind of the situation he was in, it's it's disturbing that that was going on in the first place.
0: Now, here in San Diego, we had a screening of another documentary that kind of looks a little earlier in time than yours, 1913 Seeds of Conflict. Remember, I think it was mostly members from the Jewish Film Festival or um, a group like that. Of course, screening it at an audience like that, it There were very polarized opinions watching it. So you're making an effort to show both sides and to kind of take this objective point of view. But are you prepared for the fact that there are going to be people who feel like you are taking sides?
5: Absolutely. In any topic, in any controversial topic you might actually address, you will have to assume that this is a very natural result, that you will have people who might like it, people who might not, people who might... Not have a specific opinion, so imagine if it, if it, if our film is on the most controversial conflict you know in modern history that 's why one thing we didn 't actually talk about, and Andy could also jump in here and 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 talk about this is the amount of verification fact finding and amount of reading and references we looked at you know the historical accuracy and also the vetting the varying process afterwards like when we finished like the first draft we sent it out to historians for their feedback and then we did more edits and then we sent it to other historians so we we went through a, a huge process like probably we spent a whole year editing and also fact finding and checking and making sure that we have uh, historical accuracy as of course you know we can't claim 100% historical accuracy that's just impossible but we did our best really to take out anything that even sounded like not true or n- not factual
6: the the research actually began before we even shot any any video and I, I i tallied it up one day just to just to see how much we'd done and it was about 20,000 pages of history that we've gone through to back up this story and to make sure that we both have our heads around the facts uh, of, of what happened. In, in addition to that, we interviewed, there are half a dozen of the most recognized historians of the conflict um, that are featured in the documentary, and we're going to make available the script for the documentary Fully referenced, uh, like an academic paper, so that if, if you if you see any moment in the documentary where you say, "Oh, I don't buy that," that's you can go to the website, you can look up that line in the script, and you can see what historical references we have to back up that claim or that whatever that person is saying. And we've also had a lot of conversations about it's important to us to be fair, but balance is not something that we are going for. Ba- balance is something that i think really distorts so much of what is going on in the media these days. The the here's what one side says and here's what the other side says. You figure out what's the truth. Well no, that's your job as a journalist. It's your job to figure out what the truth is. Feel you know, present both sides, give give a fair hearing to both sides. But but don't just throw out two opinions and tell me I am supposed to, to figure out what makes sense. That's why we did this research. We did the history. And I don't think that, you know, we we tried very hard to make sure we're not hammering people over the head with, you know, one side or the other. I, I don't think anyone's going to like, you know, neither of us are going to argue that we we don't have opinions and we don't have a point of view. But we tried very hard to make sure that we're Giving, we're humanizing both sides, and we're we're allowing both sides to to speak their voice.
5: I want to give you an example of how detailed and how meticulous we were actually in making sure we have accurate historical narrative. You know, at least the basics. So, if we take the Uthman Akel um, interview, the survivor of Dersim we we interviewed him in his house in Escandido and um the interview itself took you know took us probably like maximum 3 hours with everything the setup and talking them before and talking to them after etc um but actually it it took us 8 months really to build that segment and a lot of the work we did was calling you know like we started a huge search for survivors of Daryacine and even like um you know children of survivors of Daryacine or grandchildren who heard the stories, and I would call them and I would actually transcribe my calls my phone calls with them and and ask them the questions so what what happened if if they were the survivors, what exactly happened? what did you see and 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 seeing the possibility of the horrifying uh, killings that Athman uh, Aqal uh, talked about, whether those were possible, you know, plausible and, and and then I would talk to grandchildren who heard stories from their grandparents and children um, and in some cases I went as far as there were books actually in Palestine we got uh, a hold of one book on that was published by Birzeit University uh, and it was a professor from Birzeit University in Palestine who who wrote the book um, and I translated it and we went through again, you know, like comparing those stories. It took us about eight months really to, and, and, and even after we finalized the segment, we kept going back and forth on some of the very minor details, you know, talking to experts, um, people who wrote books on the Um, So um, just to give you an idea about the amount of work we put into Not only listening to the stories and documenting the stories, but also making sure we don't put anything that would be historically inaccurate. And again, you know, there is always a margin of error when it comes to research, um, but I think ours is very low
0: let's play one last clip and kind of bring it back to someone who provides an intimate perspective. And this is the woman Hava Keller.
6: Okay. So this is, this is Hava Keller, uh, who I just love. Um, she was so sweet and this is toward the end of the interview. We were, we were just talking about, you know, I was asking about kind of heard her to summarize what was happening and, and she just, she just sort of threw this out there and, and it, and it, we put it at the end of the documentary because I think it summarizes what happened. It gives you kind of a big picture view of the war.
7: And the most horrible thing about it was then, who knows, the war started and the Arabs were thrown out of their villages. Not one Kibbutz said that they don't want to take their land. Not one Kibbutz. Everybody was very happy to steal their land.
6: And I think what's important to that clip she, she just said everybody was happy to steal their land and, and you could you could feel this like disappointment because wh- the people she's talking about the the, the kibbutz is that you know these are people who aren't like they didn't come to Palestine to take it over that wasn't what was in their mind when they came here they came to Palestine to build this like utopian society and it, 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 they were very idealistic. They, you know, believed in like, let's create a place where, you know, we can be free and we can, you know, we can create the kind of wonderful place we want to live in. And so those are the kind of ideals that they had. And then, but they ran up into this problem of there were already people living on the land that they wanted. And then to see those people with those great ideals turn to what she says, everybody was happy to steal their land. It's, it's, I think it's just ultimately disappointing for her.
0: So now that your film is about to be released into the world, what do you hope it accomplishes? If you're not taking a specific side, what are you hoping that your film can do?
5: We hope that it will shed some light on a very dark spot in history, you know, a very dark era in history that created a huge issue of injustice for the Palestinians. And Nowadays, the Palestinian population is is probably still in spite of the Syrian uh, refugee crisis i think the palestinian refugee population is still the largest in the world estimated at around 7 million people uh dispersed around the world many of them as i said thousands actually still live in uh very similar conditions to the conditions they started living in 1948 as a ref- as refugees And to give those people justice is um, like part of the conversation on how to, you know, fix the problem for those people, to to give them justice, is really understand the conflict, to be able to understand the importance of the issue of the return of the Palestinian refugees to their homeland. And, of course, compensation for all the years of living uh, refugee lives. It's an important aspect of finding a just solution for the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Without it, we, you know, without that understanding, we can't push for a just solution. It's it's very hard. As I said, you know, the Israeli narrative in the United States is the dominant narrative. And it excludes, of course, all that important history. It aims at actually kind of misinforming on the conflict and its consequences to maintain, you know, hegemony in, 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 in terms of finding the solutions of that conflict. I I, I don't see how can Americans, for example, advocate for a just peace in the Middle East without understanding the roots of the conflict. They really have to understand it to push for a just uh, resolution. But also because the conflict is really maintained by our tax dollars as Americans. Israel gets every year billions of dollars in military aid and other types of aid from the U.S. government, which comes really literally from our tax money. There are so many avenues, definitely, that instead of supporting war and conflict, uh, that does not help at all. If anything, it's just going to maintain the conflict. And that's why Americans really have to understand the root of the conflict and link it to what's going on today on the ground.
6: So for me... I think most Americans, like in a sense, have given up on this conflict. They just look at it and they say, These people are crazy, they kill each other all the time they 've been doing this for thousands of years there 's nothing I could possibly do that would change that and in fact i don 't even know what to do to to change that and in order to like there we can 't have any change in this we in in this conflict we can 't have any end to the violence. On both sides, unless people understand it, and America really is the big player in this subject, so that's that's why we're targeting people in America, and we think that education needs to happen in America and you know when you watch the news, you see you know bombs here, explosions there, people dead here they never really explain the background of it. They never explain why any of this is happening. Maybe they'll go back a few weeks. Maybe if you're very lucky every once in a while, you'll get back to 1967, but nobody ever goes back to 1948 and explains that seven to 800,000 Palestinians were forced from their homes. Eight out of every 10 Palestinian Arabs who lived in what became Israel were forced to leave. It was essentially cleared of almost every um, Arab that, that lived in what became Israel and that's at the heart of this conflict and and if you if you can't wrap your head around that if you don't have that information you can't possibly make sense of anything that's going on right now and if you can't make sense of anything that's going on right now you don't even know where to start when you're asking for change and so that's what this this documentary is about it's about educating people about the core of this conflict how it makes sense and and then once people wrap their heads around it then they can ask for change and they can they can know that what they can know what's happening on a daily basis today and use the context of 1948 to understand what's going on today and it really does make a lot of things make a lot more sense and then you can um then you can demand change so the education is really the essential the foundation of any call for change and that's what this documentary is about
0: And one last time, if you want to give people a website where they can either get more information about your film so they can possibly see it on the big screen and also where they can support it.
5: So if you like our idea, if you like our documentary, please support us. Uh, You can go to 1948movie, one word, dot com, slash support. And uh, it, it takes you literally a minute to donate. Thank you. And it's tax deductible.
6: And you can also, uh, we're on Facebook, um, facebook.com slash 1948movie. Um, and you can find a trailer and some more information about the project at 1948movie.com.
0: All right. Well, I want to thank you both very much for coming out and talking about your film.
5: Thank you very much.
6: <laughs> thank you very much for having us. We appreciate it.
0: Thanks for listening to another edition of listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome on board Landmark Theatres as one of the sponsors of Cinema Junkie. Cinema Junkie will be hosting the Midnight Movies at the Ken Cinema. This weekend, you can see Edward Scissorhands, directed by Tim Burton and starring Johnny Depp. And just a reminder, Cinema Junkie is going to be going on vacation the last two weeks of December. I'll be back in January to talk about a lot of exciting film programs, including talking to real scientists about how real science and science fiction compare in movies. I'll also be talking about the new film series that the Film Geeks, which I'm a part of, will be starting at both Digital Gym and Mopa. There'll be a year-long series on John Carpenter as well as a series about famous firsts in movies. And if you want to support the Film Geek's Indiegogo campaign, you can do that until December 17th. The campaign is called The Film Geek's Cult of Cinema. And you can buy year-long passes to our programs at Mopa and Digital Gym Cinema. So till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie.